Episode 174, Jonathan Andell, one of the world's first certified Six Sigma black belts. That's not easy to say. Kind of got a little bit, uh, yeah, yeah, about the people who hadn't listened to me in the first place. I'm Mark Rabin. This is my favorite mistake. In this podcast, you'll hear business leaders and other really interesting people talking about their favorite mistakes. Because we all make mistakes, but what matters is learning from our mistakes instead of repeating them over and over again. So this is the place for honest reflection and conversation, personal growth and professional success. Visit our website at myfavoritemistakepodcast.com. For more information about Jonathan and his work, you can look for links in the show notes or go to markgraven.com slash mistake174. As always, thanks for listening. And now on with the show. Hi, everybody. Welcome to My Favorite Mistake. I'm Mark Raven. Our guest today is Jonathan Andell. He has been working in the field of quality since 1987. He was one of the world's first certified Six Sigma black belts in 1992. And he's been a consultant since 1998. He's a fellow in the American Society for Quality. So that's uh, quite an honor uh, received in 2008. Um, so Jonathan's uh, had clients around the world, leading firms in industries including aerospace, automotive, electronics, healthcare, manufacturing, software, telecommunications, and more. Uh, he's published and presented extensively. Jonathan has a BS in metallurgical engineering from Purdue University and an MS in metallurgy from Penn State. So uh, I'm 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 happy I'm I'm surprised I didn't make a mistake trying to say metal. See, oh, now I overthought it. Metallurgical or metallurgy. Uh, Jonathan, welcome to the podcast. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Thank you for having me. Um, you say those words a lot more often than I ever have. So, Well, I, I, I had to for a few years anyway, because I was, you know, stuck with a bunch of other metallurgy type people. So, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, Jonathan is also uh, an avid amateur musician and a passionate community service volunteer. So uh, what, what instrument, just uh, as a quick detour into that? I, I was a singer uh, hmm. in, my, in my really good days. I, I got to sing with the Cleveland Orchestra Chorus for a few seasons. Oh, wow. That's long ago and far away. <laughs> and what's, what's your uh, favorite community service um, organization or type of service work to do? Uh, I'm, I'm in a lot of them. I help my uh, religious congregation uh, provide uh, meals for homeless families, and uh, I'm, I'm currently uh, trying to raise funds for a uh, tolerance-based organization. I just kind of like to do what I can and uh, you know, try to contribute my skills and my abilities wherever possible. Well, that's great. So... We have a lot to talk about today, um, Jonathan, but um, as, as we always do here, I'm curious to hear your story. What would you say is your favorite mistake? Okay, well, uh, this, this happened way back in my uh, first days of becoming a so-called Six Sigma Black Belt. Um, there was a technical situation that had arisen, and I believed I had a solution for it, or at least a methodology to help solve the problem. Um, but as is common, uh, it was it met with skepticism, people were doubtful, and so on and so on. 
and uh, I I tried a number of times, uh, and I beat my head against the wall a few times before I finally found one manager and one team that was willing to give it a try. And uh, and the good news is uh, when we gave it a try, we we knocked it out of the ballpark. We really scored a a big technical success. And uh, I don't want to go too far down the rat hole of what the technical success is, but so be it. There it was. Well, what, um, I'm, I'm curious, though, to hear a little bit. What was what type of technical problem was it? Well, uh, they were uh, designing electronic circuits and they were using computers to simulate what the process, what the circuit would do before they went and built it. And uh, it occurred to me that each time you run a circuit model, you're essentially doing an experiment. And uh, I thought the methodology of design of experiments would be a very handy way of manipulating all of the variables systematically and really isolating which of those variables were important to uh, drive the circuit performance. And so uh, finally, after a, a period of time, we found a team that was willing to give it a try. And we, we had a very big success uh, in, in this uh, thing. And uh, then, then we came to my mistake. Uh, and, and basically, um, I was kind of a young, hot shot, very impressed with myself. Uh, and uh, uh, when we started reporting it out to the management and of the engineering groups, I, I kind of got a little bit uh, about the people who hadn't listened to me in the first place. And okay, you know, the, the technical success was kind of unavoidable, but uh, it, it certainly didn't win me any friends and it, it didn't really give me uh, as much satisfaction as if I had been a little bit more mature about that type of stuff. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I can see how, you know, it strained relationships that I would really had no, no need to be straining. Uh, and, uh, fortunately I'd like to think I learned from it. Um, you, well, when you say you'd Adam, like to think you learned from it, did you manage to yeah. uh, avoid gloating over successes like that? In, 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 well, in yeah, when I got to this craft foods place, uh, I, I think I did things a little better and I think I learned from it. Uh, we discovered this was a bakery where they made uh, uh, Oreos and Ritz crackers and saltines. And uh, my assignment was on the floor where they mixed these 2,500 pound batches of the dough that eventually became baked into the ingredients. And uh, on my first week on the job, I discovered that the computers thought that the amount of those ingredients like flour or sugar or what have you um, was not really reading it accurately. There was a difference between what we thought we were putting in and what was actually going in. It was a measurement system issue. And uh, because I had hopefully learned a little bit from before, um, I, I took my data to my point of contact and he and I went in and talked to the person who had put in the measurement system that is now being questioned. and. Uh, Rather than do something that would, uh, you know, embarrass him publicly or make him look like a fool, we actually sat down behind closed doors and said, okay, 
how do we make sure that this is real and how do we make it so that fixing it can be your success rather mm. than have it reflect badly on you. And uh, it, it took a while, you know, he, he wasn't thrilled to find out that there was a problem, but uh, after uh, so several times where I cheerfully ran out and gathered the kind of data he wanted uh, and came back, he, he realized I was on his side and we, we came up with a plan of attack. It made him look good. And lo and behold, uh, even without me saying anything about how wonderful I thought I was, uh, it made me look good. And so, you know, I'd like to say it's it's kind of proof that I I learned my lesson and came up with a, a little bit of personal growth, came to a better place. So I, I guess that would be kind of the before and after side of, of my yeah. uh, probably one of my bigger mistakes. Yeah. Well, and that's uh, thank you for sharing that. And yeah, I, I, I can sort of try to picture the moment um, where you describe it as you know, taking a victory lap or gloating or dunking on the people who yeah. didn't want to, who had the skepticism or didn't want to work with you. I mean, what, what were some of the immediate implications or aftermath? Was it more difficult to, um, you know, find people, were, were those people less likely to want to work with you as, as the internal black belt? It was a funny thing because once once we realized that the methodology was solid and we really needed the methodology, uh, everybody needed to work with me whether they liked to or not. But uh, it was more tense. It was less friendly. It wasn't as much fun as it could have and should have been. And, uh, you know, we, we finally kind of got past it, but it, it was just a a lot more relationship tension than the situation called for. And, and I can't blame it on anybody, but uh, my own need to yeah. grow up a little bit. Now, did you get, I mean, how did you realize this was a mistake? Did you get feedback from somebody? Was there a scolding or did you just read the room and realize like, oh, wait a minute, I've uh, made a mistake here? Well, I, I, I read the room enough to know that there was some tension about and fortunately, uh, my manager was also uh, the the ultimate mentor of my career, and uh, we had a he he had a little heart to heart with me afterwards about uh, you know what I did and what I could have done and, and you know alternatives for the future. So, and uh, he he did me so much good in so many ways that uh, I, I you know. I'd, I'd have been a fool not to take this advice on top of all of the other good advice he had given me. I think, I think that, that goes to show the role, the importance of a good manager, because like, you know, without, oh, yeah. let's say if the manager hadn't been in the meeting or the manager had thought like, I'm too busy. I don't want to have a talk to him about this. Like if they weren't willing to do that, you, you might've sensed tension, but you might've written it off as like, Oh, well, they're, they're just still, they're still sore about, something you're you can't blame yeah. it on them instead of yeah sort of losers you. or some sort or of thing like that yeah that they have the bad attitude that they don't want right. to work with you right right, right. and uh, yeah I, I definitely benefited from uh having some folks that uh you know understood were in my corner were helping me grow and stuff like that and at the same time were you know ultimately your best friend is not the person who glad hands you and, and gives you a pat on the back all the time. Your best friend is someone who helps you confront something that needs improvement. 
Yeah. And uh, in that regard, he was, he was a true friend. And a true mentor. And um, I, I, you know, I, it, it, it just makes me think of, you know, the dynamics in situations like this where you feel like, uh, well, you know, you're, you're really oriented around solving problems, right? Whether as an engineer, um, you know, myself included, maybe you have that, that mindset and think of thinking in terms of like facts and data. And so, well, there is a problem here, or there are defects in this production, or there are mistakes being made in patient care. Like that, those things can all be factually true. Yep. But then there's the the, the people dynamic of either, and I'd be curious to hear you know, your thoughts and reflections on this, people not wanting to admit the mistake if they can deny it and either say, well, the data is inaccurate or it's not really a problem or you're overreacting. Things like mm-hmm. that can happen. Or even if people are willing to tackle a challenge like that, there's emotion involved. They may feel, I've seen this a lot, where people feel or even express a sense of shame that the problem exists and that shame and those feelings can, can you know, kind of sidetrack the sort of the logical data-driven, we need to move forward and solve it, where sometimes people need space to, to process their emotions. I, I feel bad that this problem hasn't been solved b- before. And there's, mm-hmm. there's, there's lots, there's a lot of emotion involved for, for engineers like us to navigate. Right. <laughs> yeah. I, I think, um, you know, without the benefit of a mentor, I, I envisioned an engineer as a person who could, you know, swoop in wearing a cape and a blue shirt with a red S on his chest and, and just, you know, solve everything for everybody. And, uh, you know, the facts were the facts and that's all that you needed. Um, but the, Reality is, you know, you've got the GE uh, equation about a, the effectiveness of a solution is both the quality and its acceptance. And uh, the, this was my beginning of a long journey of understanding how the acceptance part is sometimes the really difficult aspect about it. Uh, and, and there are so many different ways that the lack of acceptance can manifest it and different ways that you uh, you, we, I need to work to break it down, uh, that, you know, just having the facts and throwing out the facts is, is what we engineering nerds call necessary, but not sufficient. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's, it's really much more of the, the human issue of getting into the other person's shoes a little bit and walking around and trying to figure out how can we make this a, a win-win type of situation. Uh, you know, the, the more I get, uh, I figure by the time I'm about 5,000 years old, I'll have perfected it. So, Yeah. And, you know, the Six Sigma methodology or related methodologies often talk a lot about the importance of being data driven. Sure. But then there's also, I think what you're touching on, a need for empathy. It's not just. Oh, data. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. The uh, The people side of improvement, I think that's. That's where I think Six Sigma gives lip service, but Lean really puts substance to it. When you look at Shingo's guiding principles of leading with humility and respect for everybody. And, uh, you know, if there's one thing where I think Six Sigma has uh, good intentions, but they might have missed the mark, is this whole kind of elitism with uh, black belts and stuff like that. Um you sometimes you need the high power, you know, the high 
horsepower to do stuff. Um, like, you know, one time I had to do the data analysis to decide yes or no, are we going to do a uh, multi-million dollar recall because of a dimensional issue? Well, okay, that was a high-powered statistical analysis, and they needed their top gun being a data nerd to be able to sort out whether that was an issue. But really, the majority of improvements, you're talking about EMI's everyone, everywhere, every day, and that's not a black belt. That's... yeah. Everybody who has pants that get held up with a belt or something else, you know. Yeah, that's the uh, the for those who don't know the Japanese author and consultant Masaki Amai, who really mm-hmm. encouraged um, continuous improvement as as you as Jonathan was saying, you know, everybody participating. And so I, I want to hear your thoughts. I mean, that was kind of a maybe one of the mistakes, as much as we can generalize with Six Sigma. You you use the word uh, elitist. This idea of um, you know the specially trained experts being the ones who drive improvement versus trying to engage everybody. That, that could be a real trap or a pitfall for an organization. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, I think um, one of the things I, I've come to discover both uh, in personal experience and otherwise is uh, uh, my belief that um, the person who knows the most about digging the ditch is the one carrying the shovel. And uh, if, if you really want to tap into process expertise, you go talk to the people who are running the process. And, uh, you know, it, 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 it sometimes means that sometimes you need a resource who can pull all of that stuff together and ask the right questions and stuff like that. But really, um, if you, if all of your problem solving is with managers and executives off in a boardroom somewhere, uh, your likelihood of really solving the problem has been diminished significantly. You, you just, you got to go to Gemba, you got to, you know, to any, to the extent that I'm allowed to, I like to even try to do the actual work myself. Um, obviously that doesn't always work. So, you know, it's probably not a good idea if I try to do some brain surgery. Yeah. Don't, don't try to fly the plane and maybe, a yeah, simulator, yeah you know, but, uh, but, you know, in, in general, get as, get as close to the work and see the people really living and breathing it and, uh, and let them, you know, have a much bigger say in what gets improved. And uh, to me, that's, that's really the, the core of, of making continuous improvement take off. Yeah. yeah. So you mentioned uh, another very common problem-solving mistake, not, not ex- exclusive to Six Sigma, the idea of, of managers talking about problems in a conference room as opposed to being out where the work is done, whether that's the operating room or a manufacturing shop floor. Um, for, mm-hmm. for those who don't know the term, uh, Jonathan said gemba. That's a Japanese word. That means basically the actual place, or it's used yeah, in the context for, of... Yeah, I should have used the, the term go see, which people understand <laughs> yeah. much better. You, you yeah. go out there and you go see so, what's happening. So we're, we're, we, we, um, we're all guilty, hey, myself included. You know, there's that mistake of using jargon that people might not know. Does that mm-hmm. perpetuate the elitism of like, well, I, I know the right terminology and, and, and you don't. That, that, can, um, that can cause different problems in a workplace. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I had a, a work assignment with a... Uh, a very smart plant manager, really intelligent guy, really well intended. 
um, had a tremendous vocabulary of Japanese jargon words out of the lean world. But uh, other people in the room would hear these words and wonder, what's he talking about? What's, what's going on here? And, uh, you know, and he, he, he knew how to do activities. And oh, I'll throw out some words without needing to define them, you know, kamabishi and stuff like that. He knew how to dump, dump, dump these things off of the checklist. But when he actually went out to do them, he, he wasn't capturing the spirit of it. He wasn't meeting with humility. He wasn't respecting people. He wasn't learning from them. And so it was, you know, alphabet soup, but not really anything uh, substantial to, uh, to drive improvement. So, you know, there's this whole life cycle of business methodologies, you know, it becomes, it's unheard of, it becomes a fad, it gets overblown, people get discouraged, there are these different waves. And, um, you know, going from 1992, when, when you got your Six Sigma black belt, to mm-hmm. then maybe 15 years later. I don't know if you watched the show 30 Rock. That was one of my favorites back when uh, I, I certainly enjoyed their, their uh, send up of Six Sigma. Yes. So here you have a major uh, sitcom on NBC, pretty openly, regularly mocking, you know, the Six Sigma culture because, you know, the 30 Rock, it was set in, um, you know, a slightly make believe version of Saturday Night Live and General Electric that owned. Um, NBC at the time, but you know, you you think of the the Alec Baldwin character Jack Donaghy bragging about how I think it, the term was like I'm a Six Sigma black belt ultimate, <laughs> and you know he talked about having not just the secret handshake but like the tattoo to prove it. Like there, there's a risk that methodologies like this almost seem a little bit cultish, and you know, with the fervor that people have for their methodology, right? Yeah, I, you know, I. I... I would say, you know, you, you made a couple of really good points along the way, certainly um, making fun of how Six Sigma was rolled out by uh, Jack Welch and GE. Boy, there's a lot of material there. It's, you know, Six Sigma at gunpoint is kind of how I used to describe GE. But uh, the, the cultish thing, you know, I, I know we've got people who call themselves Jonas and we've got people who call themselves senseis and people who call themselves black belts. and um, I, I like to joke that uh, I've, I've been a master black belt for so long that now I'm officially a Jedi. Uh, but, uh, but uh, you know, every now and then you run into people who get really tunnel vision about one or another of those methodologies. And uh, to me, they're all just different tools from the same toolkit. And uh, if you're in a situation where this tool works today, then pull it out and use it. And when it no longer works, put it back in the box and take out another tool. And, uh, I'm, I'm happy to use uh, mean or statistics or Six Sigma or just basic process mapping, you know, whatever happens to work. Uh, it's, it's more important that the tool serves the uh, serves the team rather than that the tool becomes the master. Yeah. So there's the tools and then there's the mindsets. And like one thing that comes to mind, which was probably more of a Jack Welch thing than it was a Six Sigma thing. The, the old, um, you know, they used to call it rank and yank or Jack Welch oh, would talk yeah. about, he would That's talk about how with me. 
Um, that's why I wanted to ask you about it. You know, th this idea of like, oh, you know, everyone's got to fire their bottom 10% every year. And, you know, Jack Welch passed away a few years ago, and I don't think he would have come on my little podcast. And I, I, for a lot of reasons, it's a little podcast. And I have been you know, on my blog, a critic of Jack Welch and some of these practices. But I think when you talk about learning over time, I, I find it interesting. I want to hear your thoughts on this, that in recent years, when Jack Welch was teaching and writing with his wife, Susie, and um, Jack Welch did pretty publicly um, disown that idea of ranking yeah. Yank. And, and I'm, I'm curious what opened his eyes to that. I'm, I'm curious to, if you want to go on a rant or share some thoughts about any of that. Um, um, I can't claim to know why he had a turnabout of opinion, but um, I, I was a was and will be a huge opponent of Rankin-Yank. Apparently, uh, the, the tradition is now being carried on in the professional ranks at Amazon. Uh, I've heard they even have been accused of hiring someone just to fire them because uh -huh. some number of people have to be fired. Um, Yikes. And their turnover you know, is high I, enough as it is anyway. Yeah, I mean, in the professional ranks, it may be a little bit different because um, I'm not aware of anybody in the professional ranks who has to uh, relieve themselves into a bottle. Yeah. Uh, but uh, allegedly, uh, as we say for the lawyers. Uh, yeah, allegedly. Yeah, allegedly again and again, allegedly. Right, um, right, right. But, uh, you know, I, I read Brian Joyner's book, Fourth Generation Management, mm -hmm. and uh He's got a whole chapter which totally decimates the idea of performance reviews anyway as, as little more than glorified popularity contests. And so the notion that you can even objectively rank people uh, means you have to set up artificial criteria which don't necessarily serve the organization. And, uh, and then as a statistical nerd, um, if you have, I'll just make it up, 10 departments with 10 people each. So one person from each department has to be targeted. Statistically, one of those departments is almost certain to be getting rid of someone who's not truly in the bottom 10% of the entire organization. Sure. Yeah. If, I, if a manager has managed to hire 10 all-stars. Yeah. If you will. Yeah. Why, why are you forced to fire yeah. one of those 10? Yeah. And, yeah. And at the same time, you know, some somebody is likely to have two or more people who are in the bottom 10 percent. Uh, so just statistically, it's it's flawed. Uh, and then, you know, Deming's approach is if you've got someone who's not working out in their position, figure out what they should be doing and get uh -huh. them doing that. Yes. And uh, that's that's a whole more. It's more work, but it's it's a better way of using your people and a better way of uh, making the whole organization successful. So the underlying rank in Yank is just flawed in so many philosophical and quantitative ways. I'm, I'm glad to hear that Jack Welch kind of saw the error of his ways. It's a shame he didn't see it back when he could have changed other people's lives a little bit, but yeah. so be it. There's um, and 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 there you know there's this question of like if you have bad employees, well then 
why, why did you hire them to begin with? Or there are systemic drivers of these problems we could challenge. Are 10% of them really worth firing? I remember one thing I blogged about, um, you know, shouting at the clouds. You know, I, I reacted to Jack Welch making a comment about this need to fire people. And he said something to the effect of like, well, a certain percentage of your employees are just going to turn out to be turkeys. I, I remember he used the word turkeys. And I thought, like, just what, what a rude, disrespectful way to refer to employees. And why the hell are you hiring turkeys? Yeah. If that's really, if that's really what they are, you should get yeah. better at filtering out the turkeys then. Yeah. Plus, the other thing about Rankin Yank is where you want a lean environment where people are cooperating with each other and helping each other. If, if one of us is going to be at risk of getting zapped, uh, you know, we're going to try to undermine one another and that's going to make the whole business operate poorly. So there, there's, there's a whole lot of reasons why that is just bad capitalism. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit, you know, you, you were, um, you know, kind enough to share a, a favorite mistake from your career, Jonathan. And I think it's always, um, it's great when we can do that, when we can recognize our, our own mistakes and reflect on them and share them. But when we, we think now about organizations, what are your thoughts on what's needed to create a workplace culture where it is safe for people to talk about mistakes? What, what's necessary to make that happen? Hmm. I think some of it is structured in the idea of the respect for people and lead with humility. And uh, um, I think if, if an organization, this may just be one example, but it happens to be noodling through my uh, brain. If an organization has gotten to the point where they've done a reasonably good job of creating standard work, then if somebody has an idea for an improvement in a process, you can experiment with it and compare the outcome versus the standard outcome. And, okay, let's say I pop out an idea and either it makes no improvement or maybe it would have made things a little bit worse. The way to handle it is say, okay, what, what happened and why didn't it do what we expected? What can we learn from it? Uh, and, and in the what can we learn from it, uh, if you can turn one or two of those into well, let's try this experiment a little bit different way and maybe it'll work better. Uh, it, it creates that safety that, okay, it was okay to make a mistake and, and maybe the mistake was a stepping stone on its way to a better thing. Um, you know, I had an organization that used to love to say uh, that what you really want to do is fail forward. Uh -huh. and, uh, right. you know, but how do you get from a shame and blame environment to a situation where it's safe? Um, that, that takes a leadership change. Not necessarily getting rid of people, but getting the people to be different people moving forward. You know, uh, ultimately, the, the biggest person that the leader needs to change is the one they see in the mirror. Yeah. Um, you, you, you talk about um, you know this idea of trying new things in the workplace and realizing, or even expecting, not everything is going to work out the way we predicted. And that thought yeah. process you're describing is is very logical, very rational. 
But then we come back to the realm of emotion where, where leaders get upset. They, 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 even if they're not raising their voice and yelling, like the disapproval may be somewhat calm and measured, but it's clear. And yeah. then I think that, en- that ends up driving a dynamic where if, um, you know, I think there's this NASA expression that gets abused in workplaces or becomes abusive, you know, failure is not an option. Like, well, if that's what you're going to pressure people on, guess what? They're, they're going to stop taking risks. They're going to stop trying new things, or they're going to be so cautious that mm-hmm. change takes a really long time. I think that's yeah, the and, and a lot of it also has to do with the stakes. I mean, clearly, um, some years ago, I was hospitalized with a potentially life-threatening condition. Um, you know, I'm, I'm rather glad that the attending physicians did not take three weeks coming to consensus about what the treatment was. I'm, I'm really glad there was one person who was basically issuing the orders and a team of people who were following them because the stakes are high and you need the expert in that one circumstance. So for that one, that's an individual isolated case where failure is not an option. But, you know, in most of the organizations that we're at and stuff like that, you know, if you want to try something and it doesn't work quite as well as you'd thought it was, well, okay, thanks for trying, not a big deal. Um, and, uh, and again, if you can turn it into, well, what can we do differently to make the idea work, that, that just conveys such a strong message. You know, if, if you if you allow the failure to be a stepping stone toward a, an eventual success. Um, and the other side of the coin is, you know, if you're letting everybody come up with ideas and it's the work that they know, chances are a number of them are going to be good ideas from the get-go and you don't have to do anything fancy to experiment. You know, If, if the idea was... Uh, let's put an extra pen holder on this visual display board so you don't have to walk across an aisle that forklift trucks go on. Mm-hmm. That doesn't take an experiment. That takes a, a pen holder. You know. Sure. I just do it, if you will. That doesn't yeah. require a Six Sigma master black belt to do a lot of statistical analysis or data collection of how many times are you walking back and forth? How many near misses have there been with the forklift? At some point, just, just make the change. It's a small. Yeah, a few, a few of them are, are totally obvious, and you know, the justification can be made with the word "duh." <laughs> duh, problem solving. That sounds like yeah, there a, you go. a book to write someday. <laughs> I got to learn the Japanese word for "duh." duh. Um, there's um, so there's a book. A lot of times, guests have a book that they are promoting. There is a book. Inside of you, Jonathan, that, that you're working on, I believe. I'm, I'm working on it. Uh, I'm, I'm, I haven't got a, a title and I haven't got all of the stuff, but the basic thesis is going to be along the lines of um, when you're trying to roll out a lean culture, um, before you start worrying about the tools, start worrying about the people and the relationships and the interplay and get those in place. And let the tools be layered in as they're needed. So, so many organizations, you know, they they throw bodies into classrooms and they teach them all of these methodologies and stuff like that. And people get back to the workplace and they go, I don't know, what do you want to do? 
or they want to do something. Here, here's a mistake I've seen related to Six Sigma, a company I worked with almost 20 years ago, was really proud of how many employees they had put through the Six Sigma Greenbelt training and certification. And it was a good certification. It wasn't just a classroom. People actually had to do a project that was okay. being mentored by a black belt. And it was, it was pretty, it was rigorous. And they would have all the certificates on the wall. And let's say they had trained, we'll call it um, 500 people, trained and certified 500 people with the hope and the expectation that they would continue using these practices now that we've invested in the training. And um, But this is directionally correct. If there had been 500 people trained and certified, each doing a certification project, then I think the total number of projects that had been done was something like 504. Meaning that people meaning were meaning everyone did the one they had to, and then it, yeah. that was the end of it. Yeah, and and I would say that 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 was I think clearly a cultural problem. It's not that people didn't Absolutely. want to do more projects, right? But there were barriers. Yeah, and and I I also see issues uh, where the belts have to come up with their own projects, and uh, you know it's not. It's not tied to anything like, uh, sorry about another Japanese word, Hoshin Kanri, which is, you know, strategically planning what are the organization's priorities so, so that the projects are, are supporting some kind of a, you know, systematic move forward. Um, when, when you got people who haven't been trained in the methodology, now they got to go figure out how they're going to go demonstrate the methodology that they don't yet know how it works. Uh, you're kind of in a really bad catch-22 situation. And, uh, I, I do see, have seen a lot of organizations where that's a problem. Uh, another problem I run into is organizations where the people in the class are taught, you know, the define, measure, analyze, improve, control, but nobody around them has been taught anything about what's going on. So the the candidate has basically latitude to do the define, the measure, and the analyze. But as soon as they get to improve, now you're looking to mess with somebody else's process and they're not having any of it. And uh, and I've seen a lot of organizations just, or a lot of projects just smack into a wall and slide on down right at the improve phase because uh, there's no support for the improvement to happen. Or there's fear that we're going to try and it might not work out and we'll be punished so it's easier and better not to try. And around and around we go. Yes, indeed. Around and around we go. Um, And when you do get that success, bringing it around back to your story, Jonathan, don't gloat about it. Be careful with the victory lap, right? (laughs) After after a period of time, it, it dawned on me that, you know, I can give the credit to the people around me that did all of the work and stuff like that. And a certain amount of it will wash back on me. And uh, if, it, if it really works well, I'll get a repeat engagement. And, uh, you know, between the lines, people will figure out that I had something positive to do with it, too. But uh, I, I, I don't have to go around patting myself on the back. Well, I'm going to mention I've got a fun story about one time I patted myself on the back and it totally backfired. This is totally unrelated to Lean and Six Sigma, but that's you might fine. Enjoy it's, this. it's a bonus, a bonus mistake. A bonus mistake. Uh, when my uh, now adult son was about three years old, he got into a squabble on the playground with somebody. So at night we were, you know, kind of debriefing the day, and I said, you know, 
you can't hit kids. And of course, as a three or four year old, well, he made me mad, which of course is legitimate to them, of course. Well, you know, people are going to make you angry, but you can't you can't hit them just because of that. I said, well, what do you do? And so I talked about how sometimes I just step back and I maybe count to 10 and I take a deep breath and showed him. He's real quiet for a minute there. And I'm going, yay, dad, pat on the back, yay, dad. And then he says, how will blowing on them help? <laughs> maybe if, if only Will Smith had gotten your coaching and guidance, um, oh, maybe boy. avoided slapping Chris Rock. Yeah, that was, there was, uh, there, there are no halos to be handed out there, you know. I, I don't. I don't believe that comedians should be taking personal jabs at, at people based on their looks, and I certainly don't think anybody should be smacking someone else around because of it. Yeah. But oh boy. Yeah. So well. So you talk about you know patting yourself on the back. I'm going to pat you on the back, Jonathan, for being a, a good guest here. Thank you for sharing your story and reflections. And my goodness, we could we 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 could do. Uh, another episode, a much longer episode of uh, additional either Six Sigma mistakes or lean manufacturing mistakes. Oh, I got a lot of mistakes. I got <laughs> come join me over on uh, my lean podcast sometime. We can geek out for that audience to. and uh, take a deeper dive. And and again, in the spirit of learning and uh, moving forward, failing forward. So again, our guest today has been Jonathan Andell. Um, I, I'd recommend, you know, you can find him on LinkedIn. I'll put a link to his profile in the show notes if you want to connect with him or follow him. I'm sure there will be updates that you post about the future book, right? Oh, absolutely, as things come along. So good luck with that process. And thank you. hopefully there aren't too many book writing or book publishing mistakes, but they're going to happen. So well, that's that's why we have editors and publishers and stuff like that. They get to try to find all of the mistakes that I hide throughout the text. But here's 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 a pro tip for you. You also have to be checking for mistakes they might make. It comes full circle. We'll Those talk about ones. We'll talk about that some other time. But Jonathan, thank right. you for being a guest here today. Thank you. Take care. As always, I want to thank you for listening. I hope this podcast inspires you to reflect on your own mistakes how you can learn from them or turn them into a positive. I've had listeners tell me they started being more open and honest about mistakes in their work. And they're trying to create a workplace culture where it's safe to speak up about problems because that leads to more improvement and better business results. If you have feedback or a story to share, you can email me, myfavoritemistakepodcast at gmail.com. And again, our website is myfavoritemistakepodcast.com.